Blog Talk Radio. If I speak for your followers, and I speak for your ex-followers, and I speak for the curious outsiders looking in, and you remain silent in the shadows and don't let your balls drop enough to come out and say something, then I say, who do you speak for, Mr. Miscavige? Anything on earth that says, don't listen to your mom and dad, don't talk to your mom and dad, that's bad, yeah. run. Absolutely believed his own bullshit. Now, does that mean he believed it from day one? I don't know. Hubbard reveals to them that he is the Antichrist. Scientology has not helped you. You have helped yourself. Yes, I'm absolutely positive that happened because I was physically abused in Scientology. We're crossing the line into torture. Do you think there is a rape culture in Scientology? I think that there is a culture in Scientology that children are not children. So, yeah. All right, welcome to Come Get Some Extra Scientology Edition. Yet another show uh, with a very great guest. I really am proud to bring Karen Presley, the author of Escaping Scientology. The book sales are going up, 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 up. On this one, so check it out if you get a chance, and I'll be talking to her. Uh, I'm doing the show a little bit early today because I have a scheduled interview during the normal showtime with Claire Headley for future episodes. I'm really, um, really looking forward to that conversation this afternoon, almost immediately after I close out this podcast. And I got some great shows coming up with uh, more people, more names you guys are going to recognize with uh, with content maybe you haven't heard yet. And it's going to be interesting, so I'll start announcing those as the weeks come on. So in two weeks, look for Claire Headley, and uh, there's there's a lot to be said, but right now I don't have a lot of time to talk, so I'm just going to get right into it. And I think uh, I think you guys are going to love this lady. Uh, we covered a lot of information in a short time, even for just this first half-hour part. Uh, check it out. All right. There is out there called Escaping Scientology by Karen Presley, and with me right now is the author herself, ex-Scientologist Karen Presley. How you doing, Karen? Hey, Chris. I'm great. I was looking forward to our conversation. I was too. I was too. We've uh, we've talked quite a bit leading up to this, and uh, I I've actually already read a bunch of your book, and I really I really enjoy it. And not that your your pain is enjoyable, but the um, it's just really well written and. Um, and a lot of insight from uh, what's going on in your mind, because I think the thing that people want to know most uh, when they listen to these interviews, when they read a book, and they get to hear from an ex-Scientologist is, what was going through your mind? And you did a really good job of displaying that throughout the book. I really appreciate that. Um, you know, most people that know of me, um, I guess, connect me more so with my earliest years, um, when my former husband Peter and I were recruiting celebrities into Scientology and we were at the Celebrity Center but that was a relatively short period of my history with Scientology because I joined the Sea Org uh, in 87 and I was at CC until 89 and then I went up to the in base with Peter so actually my history with at the in base is longer than my history with Celebrity Center and I, I didn't leave there until 1998 so the book covers, you know, starting out with the celebrity-centered years, which 
were really significant in my world because that's what lured me into um, the fanaticism of Scientology. But the radicalization for me in Scientology really started when I arrived at the Int Base in 1990. That's an interesting, that's an interesting way of putting it, and, and I do want to get into that. Uh, let me start you know, with, uh, you, you met Peter Schluss before uh, joining Celebrity Center, is that right? Right. We were... We, we actually met in Houston, Texas in 1977-78, and we got married in 79 and um, went on the road. So we had an interesting journey in the music world for years before we ever got involved in Scientology, which hmm. wasn't until 1981, like late 1981. Okay, so so he wrote, this is before Scientology, I think, you can correct me if I'm wrong, he wrote On the Wings of Love? He wrote Wing, On the Wings of Love in 1982. Oh. Um, that was after, it was an interesting journey because we were on the road, um, like 1980, 80, 81, we went out to L.A., Peter got a call to play with Cher's band, at the time it was called Black Rose. And he got invited by Les Dudek, who, was, um, who had played with Paul Skaggs and the Allman Brothers. So Peter accepted the gig, and we moved out from Michigan to California. And, um, you know, he became a studio musician. He worked in Cher's band. It's a pretty small, tight world. And interesting, so many people that he met were Scientologists. Hmm. But he wrote the song On the Wings of Love in 82, actually before we got into Celebrity Center. So he he actually had success pretty early on in his career, which was very lucky. That doesn't happen to everyone. Um, Peter was a very talented musician and songwriter. Okay, so you guys got uh, recruited into Celebrity Center, and... What you did a good bit of, uh, if I understand, is you, you recruited celebrities because that was really important uh, to the image uh, of this new religion. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Um, my book talks about that in the beginning. Um, Peter and I got so hooked into the Celebrity Center purpose. Um, you know, Hubbard creates this amazing um, world for artists and celebrities to step into, um, where, you know, you're, he, he has written a lot of material in Science of Survival and also specific policies about CC that talks about the importance of the artist. And we got very lured by that in terms of it being a world that we literally stepped into, where artists are treated as, you know, the top strata of Earth's beings, and because that's how Hubbard describes them. And he talks about how as an artist, you can change the world through your art by injecting what he describes as theta into the world, theta being like positive spiritual energy. And this really resonated with us because we didn't join Scientology because we were looking for a religion. We were really looking to improve our careers. So because we were so excited about this, we thought, wow, this is this is going to help our communication. It's going to help us as artists. We talked to everybody that we knew about Scientology. We were very extroverted about it. So you asked about us recruiting. Yes. I mean, we were bringing in friends, musicians, 
Um, it was really easy for us, very natural, because we were really enjoying Scientology. So we would invite people to events and seminars and get them in for intro sessions and things like that. So we got quite a few people in in the early years. Um, who and very few of them actually stayed. <laughs> so only a couple of our recruits are still in that I know of. Everyone else left since then. Well, what's interesting, I think you kind of alluded to it there. there it seems like there's two parts to the celebrity, and there's, mo- there's, there's a bunch of layers, I think, to the celebrity side of it, but there's like two major parts, whereas there's the celebrity they bring in because there are super successful, already famous celebrities. Mm-hmm. And then there's probably a much larger pool of hopefuls who think coming into Scientology is going to lead to some kind of success, lead to some kind of celebrity status, and they end up going the path that you and Peter went. You're absolutely right. I mean, in my book, I tried to explain that because, you know, when anybody thinks about Scientology celebrities, they think of the typical names, Tom Cruise, Kirstie Alley, Ann Archer, John Travolta. Um, of course, there's Chick Corea and many others, but, well, not that many others, considering how long <laughs> Scientology's been around. There's not that many A-list names that have ever been added. Um, really since Tom Cruise, but the people that fill the seats in celebrity centers are really the up-and-coming, the hopeful, the people who have talent, but they haven't yet, you know, really struck success in their career, or they're they're working on it, or they're at various levels. You know, they get gigs once in a while, or acting parts, and so the purpose of Celebrity Center is to really help those people build their confidence, build their skill level. Young artists who get lured into Scientology and told that if you get into Scientology, you can really build up your acting skills. You can become a better actor. You can do better at auditions. Um, You know, if it works for Tom Cruise, surely it can work for you. And that particular um, lure is so coercive to many, many up-and-coming artists, and that's why... That's what fills the seats of Celebrity Center. That's who's spending the money on the auditing and the training because they're hoping that somehow at some point all this Scientology uh, progress is going to make, you know, help them achieve success in their careers. But it really doesn't because it actually diverts you from your career And all it does is it it makes you a better Scientologist. It doesn't make you a better artist. Yeah, you end up more worried about saving the planet and following policy than your next audition. Like, you're not going to build your career at all. Um, That's exactly the point, you know. And look at what happened to Peter and I. I mean, Peter was an award-winning composer for On the Wings of Love. And then he wrote the theme song to Rambo for First Blood Part Two, and all that happened prior to our deep involvement in Scientology. And the deeper we got involved, the less we were accomplishing in our careers, because we were spending so much time at Celebrity Center, so much time and money getting auditing and training, that we we were losing our own uh, energy and our own focus on our careers, and got snagged into this you know, group dynamic and serving mankind and worrying about clearing the planet with Scientology that, 
you know, we, we were just so, I'll, I'll use the word coerced. When you're being coerced or deceived, you're not aware of it. And so, you know, for us, it was a, a very gradual process. And it, it literally lured us out of the, out of our careers to the extent that we both walked out of what we were doing and joined Steor. So, you know, it crashed our careers, to be honest. Yeah, so tell, and, tell us about that. When you went to Inkbase, am I interrupting a point? I'm sorry. No, well, it crashed our careers, and that's, that's really the point I want to make. Um, because joining the Sea Org particularly, uh, don't fall, anybody who's listening to this, don't fall for any lies that they tell you in their, in their recruitment. When you join the Sea Org, that is not the goal. When you join the Sea Org, you're supposed to do any job assigned. And it's certainly not to become an actor or a dancer or something like that. It's a total lie. So it will crash your career. And I, I just want anybody listening to realize that. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, because I think uh, what I think I wanted to get into next was that you guys, I think, thought something was going to happen there. But then you became really dedicated to the point to where you wanted to go to the end base. So what what made you think that that was a better move? Considering, uh, I think you were very wrapped up with being a part of what uh, was happening with Peter. You guys were working to make some things happen, and then you weren't. Talk to us about that a little bit. Well, when we were making that transition, what happened was Peter was invited up to be in space to work on the Road to Freedom album. Now, that was back in 1980. So he goes up to the Int Base, and he's working on the Road to Freedom album with the Gold Musicians. And Peter is getting very captivated by the whole sort of... He was a big fish in a small pond at that time. Right. Because the Gold, the gold Musicians were all musicians that had stepped out of their careers, and all they did was Scientology music. Um, in fact, Peter used to criticize the gold musicians for it sounding dated and, you know, not keeping their chops up and, and all that. And so there he falls into the same, into the same footsteps. He goes up there to work on a Road to Freedom album, and then he started to record music for some of their films. And, you know, he was bought musical equipment, he was taken care of, he was served food. And I think he really liked not having to worry about anything else and being taken care of and having his equipment bought for him, that he actually really liked that lifestyle. So mm-hmm. he wanted to be at gold. You know, I, I mean, we wanted to be together, so I, we, I got replaced at Celebrity Center and went on clearance lines to go up to gold. And um, for me, that was the hugest mistake I've ever made because... My book talks about the how our lives crashed uh, after we got to the base. We were in an exclusive environment where we had no connection to the outside world. We couldn't watch television, rarely listened to music, didn't read newspapers, um, didn't, you know, we completely lost touch with outside culture. And our only culture was the in-faith culture, which was very... Orwellian, and it was abusive, and I was shocked. Um, I mean, I escaped the first time in 1990. I literally blew 
uh, because I wanted to get my life back. And actually, I talked to Peter about leaving with me before I escaped, but he he didn't. It wasn't real to him to do that. He he felt like we had made a commitment there, and he didn't want to leave. So I cover all that in my book. So I escaped and I came back, and I stayed another two years. And in 1993, things had really escalated at the base, got abusive. I mean, I was seeing physical abuse. I was seeing friends of mine being forced to get abortions. Um, The psychological damage was indescribable to the extent I I can't express it all here, but I cover it by book very thoroughly. And I... Yeah. I talked to people again in 1993 about leaving because this place was dystopian. I mean, I I wanted my life back. And again, Peter said, no, we're trusted, loyal officers of the Sea Org. We're not going to leave. So I left again. And again, I was coerced into coming back. Both times I had security guards after me and ended up coming back. But to be honest, the real reason was not because I wanted to stay in Sea Org or even because I wanted to stay in, in Scientology. I wanted our marriage together, and I was hoping that I could talk Peter into leaving with me. But when I came back the second time, uh, Peter let me know that in order for us to stay married, I had to want to be in the Sea Org. So at that point, I realized, you know, since when did his... Um, sort of love or allegiance shift from our marriage to the Sea Org, and I realized then that that was it. And I said, okay, you know, I'm in. So I stayed for another five years Uh. and compromised myself. But, you know, like I talk about in the book, I I just decided, you know what, the only place to survive at the end base is at the top of the leadership ladder. So I worked my way up and got myself into uh, better positions where I had fewer people ruling me, telling me what to do. And because I was a designer, David Miscavige selected me to do special projects designing, you know, Sea uh, Org uniforms and clothing all around the world for staff. So I went off on these different projects, and I did very well at it because that was my profession before I joined the Sea Org. And... For that reason, I got promoted several times, and I kept moving up. So by the time I, you know, 97, 98, I was, I had become an officer, and I, at that point, I worked in senior executive strata under EDN as the international management PR, and then I got uh, promoted into CMON in the in-finance office, just handling um, Scientology image, and David Miscavige promoted, awarded me twice, most productive staff member at the embrace. So I accomplished what I set out to do, but I couldn't take it anymore. Uh, My book talks about how I became severely disillusioned with the whole Scientology fraud, and I just couldn't live with it anymore. So I I don't know if that's where you're at in the book yet, but I, (laughs) I talk about what led me to actually finally leave and how all that happened. Okay. Well, it is a 41-chapter book. I skipped around a little bit from preparation. Um, the 41st chapter, first page, is my favorite. I'm not going to tell people why. They can go look. 
But what were you going to say? <laughs> no, let's, let's talk about that for a minute. Chris, <laughs> chapter 41 is called Escaping Scientology. And for anybody who has not yet read the book, on page 369, <laughs> I, quote, I quoted Leah Remini from an interview with you on June 9th of 2017 on Come Get Some. And I just have to say, because I would kind of like to talk about what she means by this. In her interview with you, Chris, she said this, and I'm to people listening, I'm going to read the quote from the book. This is a quote from Leah Remini. She said, It's not easy to come out of a cult. Not many people understand it unless they were in. I'm a big supporter of people who get that. We are maneuvering our way through this life without a cult. That's not an easy thing to do. You still have to find out who you are. We need each other. We have to support each other. When I heard Leah say that in your interview, I was just frantically writing it down. And I used that quote to head up the last chapter of my book, Escaping Scientology, because she says many things in there that are extremely meaningful to me. You know, we're, we're maneuvering our way through this life outside the cult which is not an easy thing to do, and you have to find out who you are. And then, of course, she also said, we need each other, we have to support each other. So, Chris, would you agree with what she said there? Oh, 110%. And applies to so many things um, not being talked about on the show, so many things being talked about in other places. Um, it applies mm -hmm. to so many things that a lot of people listening right now probably can identify with. Yeah, maybe we should, I mean, I'll be glad to answer any questions you have, anything related to that, or wherever you want to go with that. Well, it's just, it's, it's you know, it's the reason you wrote that down, again, just remember, this, this isn't about, you know, who interviewed her, this is, her quote was right on point. Now, I'm not, I'm not an ex-scientologist, so um, as, as much as I try to identify and understand, I'll never totally be able to identify with what you guys uh, have experienced, but there's a... A lot of depth to that comment. A lot of depth. Yeah, I mean, I would just like to touch on one particular point, um, and that is we're maneuvering our way through this life without a cult. That's not an easy thing to do. You still have to find out who you are. Oh, yeah. I mean, that is that's a huge topic that a lot of people who have never been in Scientology couldn't really understand without having gone through what we did, but... I mean, Leah, you know, she was a second-generation Scientologist. She was raised into it mm -hmm. style. And in my particular case, I was not. I was a, I was an adult with a career who literally walked out of a career into this. And so both of us, Leah stepped out, I stepped out. Um, so maneuvering our way through life after the cult is not easy. You have to find out who you are find out who you are. I mean, I mean, both Leah and I were people with, well, you know, she was building a career and she had a, a, a really growing career. And, uh, but the point is, and so did I, but the point is, while you're in Scientology, you really lose yourself. Yeah. Because you, you're filling your mind with everything that Hubbard teaches about life, about priorities, about goals, about ethics, 
everything, and everything is based and framed in your mind within a Scientology framework. So you really have no independent thinking. And so when you leave Scientology, it is devastating to come to grips with the fact that, number one, you're in a cult. Number two, that your thoughts were framed by L. Ron Hubbard, but all the time you were thinking that you were achieving spiritual freedom because that's what you were studying about. Yeah. But the thing is, there was nothing about spiritual freedom that Scientology taught you. It was all about spiritual entrapment. So, you know, the fact that Leah went on to create the Aftermath show just absolutely blows me away because, you know, that is the impact Scientology had on her life in terms of lying to her and misleading her. And now she's got a powerful comeback exposing all those lies and, you know, really peeling away the lies to get down to the truth. And that is why I respect the show so much. And it's, for me, every episode that I watch is a healing process because I hear people's stories and it resonates with me and it helps me to connect the dots with what happened in my life. And honestly, when you're a Scientologist, you lose your total sense of judgment. And when you're outside of Scientology, you, you rebuild that or you rediscover it and you're really putting your mind back together on the outside of Scientology. So I just wanted to mention that because that's a very impactful point from her quote that like you said, uh, was on your show, and it's on page 369. <laughs> <laughs> Karen, you know, as you say there, is, is, is pretty impactful, like you said, and what, what Leah said was impactful. I want, I want to ask you, because that makes me think, it begs the question, and I kind of kind of think I know the answer, but how many years have you been out? I've been out 19 years, Chris. And you still sometimes would like to connect the dots a little better and, and understand things a little better from those times. Absolutely. I mean, when I listen to, for example, I read John Atat's book, um, A Piece of Blue Sky, and that book helped me to fill in so many gaps of, about things that I had no way of finding out about while I was in Scientology because they they compartment information. Um, for example, the way it works. When I went to the Flag Land Base in 1995, Lisa McPherson had just died. But yet, I had never heard of that. Nobody told me. Nobody at the base knew because the information was kept so secret. Did you know who she was? No, I didn't know anything. Okay. I, I, did, I didn't know anything. And... The reason uh, I was so shocked by the whole thing is because I arrived at Flag to work on the uniform project, but nobody told me that, you know, there was a, a death, a tragic death, and nobody told me what role Miscavige had in that or how RTC was tampering with the evidence. I mean, when you're within Scientology, you can't find this stuff out. And so, you know, I've left 19 years ago, but I still find things out because I keep reading. I, I Just recently I read the Tampa Bay uh, Times Truth Rundown, everything that Marty Raffin said, and I 
although I don't trust him now, I believe that he was telling the truth at the time. But I learn things every time I read something from another ex-member. I learn, you know, what happened to them, and it's able to explain things to me that I wasn't otherwise able to access. So, so yeah, it's an ongoing process. And, you know, if you watch Leah Remini on the show, Leah is listening to these interviews with people, and you could see the expression on her face. Yep. When she, when she hears things that she never thought of before or that she had never heard before, and yet she was in since she was a kid. Yeah, depending on where you, where you were stationed, depending on what your function was within Scientology, you don't know what other people went through sometimes. People were surprised to hear about the cadet orgs and, and you know, about some of the children uh, abuses that go on. People were surprised. Uh, about you know sexual assault that occurred, it, it's pretty amazing exactly. how shocked I find people who spent twenty, thirty years, been out ten years, still learning what I'm learning, <laughs> and I've even followed it for like a year. Yeah, I mean, take a, take a look at Mike Rinder. I mean, he is a great example. Okay, Mike was in for thirty some years. I mean, he was on the ship with Hubbard on the Apollo. Um, and then, you know, he was also born into it, or grown, you know, since a child anyway. He was in over 30-some years. He was a senior executive. He was international spokesman. He was the head of OSA. But yet, when you see him on the show, he's hearing things that he did not know. And you can see it in the expression on his face. Yeah, Leah commented... They had commented on that, and he she said that he doesn't actually know as much as people think he knows. It's an interesting it was an interesting comment by her. Yeah, um, people think that because he was the head of OSA, that he knew every dirty trick that OSA ever did, but he didn't. Um, because people hide information, they compart information, and you know, I mean, I believe Mike when when he learned about what was going on at the ranch. Um, we're going to see that episode coming up this coming week uh, about the kids being spanked and just unbelievable stuff. You know, he said, what the fuck were we part of? Excuse my language. Yeah, that's okay. You know, that, it's true. And all of us, I think, um, you know, like you said, depending on what sector we were in or how old we were or what our role was determined what access we had to information. And, I swear, I mean, we didn't know a lot of things that were going on within our own organization. So. Okay, we're going to jump around a little bit. I want to go back to Inbase for a second. Um, Inbase, for anyone who doesn't know, and correct me if I'm misspeaking, that's the one with the double-sided barbed wire, right? You can't get in or out. Correct, yeah. Okay, so it's like a prison vacation home. <laughs> sort of kind of thing. Um <laughs> Vacation home, no. Prison, yeah. It's like a prison. Um, yeah. Oh, it's like a federal prison. But I, except I think you could treat it better there. I will tell you. I mean, <laughs> you're right about vacation home in terms of what it looks like from the street. Right. It's made, it's made to look that way. It's made to look like an upscale resort with beautiful buildings. I mean, here you are in the middle of the desert, and you have thick green sod. That you know, and beautiful flowers and trees and plantings, and it's made to look like a beautiful resort, so that no one would ever imagine what's going on in there. 
Wow. So, so while you were there, you talked about um, doing some things for Miscavige. Now, one thing that I uh, take note of, I take very special note of this because I've seen it over and over again. I've read a bunch of books on this now. I've read the uh, Leah Remini's book. I read, especially saw this a lot in Amy Scobie's book, Abuse from the Top. Uh, every time someone talks on Aftermath, basically, anyone who talks in a, a documentary, uh, humiliation is a big piece of how Miscavige runs things, it sounds like. All right, we stop right there. Next week is part two with Karen Presley. We'll talk more about the humiliation factor, about the abuses by David Miscavige himself. Uh, I think a little bit more on cover-ups and about uh, about Karen getting out. Also, uh, 10 Questions returns next week with Karen Presley. And remember, two weeks, Claire Headley, looking forward to talking to her in just a few minutes here for next week. I hope uh, I hope all goes well with that, and I hope you all enjoy that and stay tuned. Until then, stay connected. I have linked Escaping Scientology, the book website for Karen. She also had an extra chat from Aftermath. She wanted me to link on here that's in the description of the podcast. Uh, that about sums it up. See you next week. If I speak for your followers, and I speak for your ex-followers, and I speak for the curious outsiders looking in, and you remain silent in the shadows and don't let your balls drop enough to come out and say something, then I say, who do you speak for, Mr. Miscavige? Anything on earth that says, don't listen to your mum and dad, don't talk to your mum and dad, that bad, yep. run. Absolutely believe his own bullshit. Now... Does that mean he believed it from day one? I don't know. Hubbard reveals to them that he is the Antichrist. Scientology has not helped you. You have helped yourself. Yes, I'm absolutely positive that happened because I was physically abused in Scientology. We're crossing the line into torture. Do you think there is a rape culture in Scientology? I think that there is a culture in Scientology that Children are not children. So, yeah.